0: There's there's being tardy and there's like a like rock star on time and sometimes I feel like this show is like them niggas is late.
1: That's where we are
0: now. That's where oh shit. Are people mad?
1: Um they're wondering when we're gonna start the revolution if we can't start a podcast. <laughs>
0: Morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to the viewing audience across the pond. I'm Jason Miles, your host for another mildly late episode of this is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, please like, subscribe, and if you are enjoying what you see, make sure you hit the notification bell as we're constantly adding episodes and cross streams with other channels like our bi-monthly news show revolutionary reckoning with david and matt of left reckoning we didn't get to have that episode this week but we did re-air an older episode i did with the late mike davis it was totally back when we were uh we had different audio and live stream guests those newer to the program may not be aware that we are an audio podcast as well. Actually, the show started as just an audio show, but alas, things change. But our show is always available on audio podcast. If you go back in the archives, you'll find that the uh, some audio shows are, are very different than the live stream shows. Thank you, Pascal Robert, for convincing me that I was doing too much so if you enjoy the show and miss the stream or if you'd like to listen to podcasts in your grueling mega commutes then subscribe to this is revolution podcast We're everywhere you get your podcasts also mt are you with me yes sir um can you can you bring up the merch on the screen
1: thing thank you um
0: can you can you do the merch pitch
1: oh man I'm not even <laughs>
0: <laughs> last time I did it and then you just repeated what I said but this time I prepared did you I did I prepared so can you can you do the the merch pitch
1: I, is this the correct one yeah. <laughs> yeah okay 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 Um also I have to pimp the merch <laughs> if you enjoy what we do here and T-I-R, at TIR mm-hmm. and don't want to make the monthly Patreon commitment mm-hmm. then you can show your support with revolutionary merch
0: oh my goodness that is beautiful oh my goodness <laughs>
1: Uh, start the revolution and you're supposed after... to say
0: it can you say it with more of a New York accent
1: your son <laughs> dead ass this is the revolutionary merch Cop one top two top three
0: thank you very much um, that was <clears throat> probably the best merch pitch That I've heard all year. Um, There's another show announcement. A big show announcement. We will be doing another Give Them a Revolution live show. This time we're bringing the live show to New York City. The Cutting Room, January 22nd. MT should be dropping links in the chat. We should have links in the description for the show for tickets. Tickets will be going on sale Monday. Again, it will be TIR ben burgess and give them an argument matt and david from Le- left reckoning i keep on Left reckoning our guests this time around are going to be sam cedar and emma vigland of majority report and more guests to be named in the near future can't wait to see y'all there um, we were in new york kuba uh, and i were in new york with ben earlier this summer um there's going to be TIR people at the New York show. Of course, Deep State Cuba said he's going to be there. Mean Jean Bajlan said he's going to be there. Um, there are rumors that this next person is going to be there. I'd like to bring in my co-host, my homie, my dog. He is the man of the Mal Mal hour. The Batman to my Robin. The, um. The, the Keith to my Mick. Peanut butter to your jelly. The, he is the peanut butter to
1: my jelly. He is the Pascal Robert.
2: Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to Jason Miles. If y'all did not su- survive that colonialist capitalist Holiday call Thanksgiving. It's all right. That's okay.
0: I, I never said I never said the word Thanksgiving on the show. I just said
2: the holiday. No, I understand. Some people have to spend time with their families, but let's remember that this is thanks taken. <laughs> <missionary> energy <laughs>
0: Oh shit! <laughs> That's all you need. Somebody, you know. Just effing up the whole family dinner going there. I'm not eating the turkey, mama.
2: <laughs> There's a skit on Instagram of this guy. I forget what his name is. Tremo. He has this puppet. He's a puppet. It's like a, it's a puppet that's like a ghetto sister from Atlanta. And he does a skit where he's Thanksgiving. He's got a guy who's like a Black Panther, NOI guy at the house. And they're screaming at each other. He's like, Thanksgiving is not the Black man's holiday. Thanksgiving is a day of corruption and the day in which the colonizer has come over and killed the indigenous people. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's actually kind of funny. But um,
0: let's also bring in another friend, uh, our brother in arms, our comrade, who also didn't celebrate Thanksgiving, mainly because it's a different day in his country. Please welcome Deep State Cuba.
3: Hello, everyone. The thing about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is those are great ingredients together, but you need a big old slice of white bread to put them on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, speaking of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, I take offense if, if you make, and I don't know if you guys are the same way, if you make the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, if you leave a naked slice of bread... Don't trust that person that leaves naked bread. Yeah. Are we all in agreement with that? Just like leaves I, it out. Well, no, you know how some people put like peanut butter and jelly on the same one, and then I have like a naked piece of bread, and they'll be like, Oh, that's a sandwich. I'm like, that's not a sandwich, that's a crime.
1: What, what <laughs> of heathens have you been spending time with?
0: That is well, that's why I have that's why I'm alone, MT. See, I, you take one slice of bread, you put jelly
1: on. Mm-hmm. You take another slice of bread, you put peanut butter on it, mm-hmm. then you put the two naked sides together and make a mess in your hand. You
0: <laughs> oh my god! Someone says they use the naked bread method. The naked bread method will get you left.
2: I'm looking at what Strom McCallum was talking about about Thanksgiving delicacies. Delicacies. He's talking about. Have you ever had squirrel gravy? I'm like Negro. What?
0: I mm, even see. That's, well, he's country. Speaking of not country, uh, she is the headless, faceless voice of reason from the big city. She is. She's also going to be at the New York Live show. Please welcome M. Toussaint.
1: Hello, hello. So like, nice to be here. With you my really can
0: That's like, you know how they have the door test for for women. You remember that movie? What movie was that? Where there there was like, if the girl opens the door for you, then she's... Oh,
1: that was the Bronx Tale.
0: Bronx Tale. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, it's peanut butter and jelly. Like, if you watch... First of all, she's like, I don't do peanut butter. Then it's like, get out. Wow.
1: Pascal's the peanut
0: butter. This is is not a almond butter house.
1: you don't do Pascal, you gotta go. Yeah. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> it ain't uh, no fun yeah. if the homies can't have
2: none you got jokes
1: Yeah um, <laughs>
3: I mean I, I appreciate the extension Of uh, the communist ethos To a new dimension But um, I thought <laughs> that that might be premature For the, the
1: live audience it might be It's also a little early in the day
0: well, also, we should bring in, we have a, a special, we're doing a new show today because we usually get to do a new show on Thursday. And of course, like I said in the opening, uh, we re-aired uh, an episode we did with, or I did with Mike Davis. Actually, right after January 6th, originally, I was supposed to talk to Mike Davis. And I think I mentioned it on the show, if you if you go back and listen to it. And he said, I'm going to sit here and watch this
4: beer hall push <laughs> that like we have to reschedule.
0: Um so we didn't get to do our new show that we were actually very excited to do. So as we're getting ready to do the new show this week, Pascal wanted to bring back a guest we've had on before. Uh, was Has it been two years? since? since it would have been re- two years, yeah. Uh, you want to introduce Jeff, Pascal?
2: Jeff Kennedy, my good friend, is a scholar, intellectual uh community organizer and leader on the issues of education chat former teacher uh child care as well as a specialist in the area of eugenics and policy consequences for america i'd like to welcome you to my good friend jeff kennedy
4: well, with uh all these distinguished radicals i forgot <laughs> <It> just, <laughs> I, I forgot <laughs> it's just how radical uh, in, in the introductions uh, you guys saw, but thank God we need you. Uh, we definitely need you holding up the fort for uh, people so that they can understand America and the world in a different way. So thank you for having me back. Not a no, problem.
0: For, for when, when Pascal uh, mentioned it, of course I was like, oh, of course. This is going to be... Uh, It's going to be fun. Um, Now, Pascal, you wanted to talk about your favorite politician, um, Mike Pompeo, and the possibility of Mike Pompeo, A, throwing his hat into the presidential arena, and (laughs) and also Mike Pompeo's assault on public education.
2: Yes, Mike Pompeo recently made a statement that actually was brought to my attention by Jeff because Jeff, is a, as a former teacher, who's had interactions with some of the characters involved, well, uh, was very astute to make me aware that Pompeo said that Randy Gardner, Randy Weingartner, former, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, was the world's most dangerous person, claiming that the union has the potential to tear down the United States. Now, Pompeo, being the right-winger that he is, is blowing smoke, basically challenging what he would think is the woke orthodoxy that is being indoctrinated through our children coming through the education system. But one of the reasons why I wanted to bring Jeff on is because there is a critique of the policies of Randy Weingarten that come from the left, that come from a radical position that do not echo the right-wing talking points that are coming out of my Pompeo a lot of it has to do with her work dealing with particularly teachers and teachers union the charter school movement and eugenics and Jeff is going to touch on all of those things for us. So I want to kind of engage in a back and forth with Jeff Arnold. Jeff please explain to us what is the significance of Randy Ryan garden in public education in America.
4: Well, I, I always start off uh, when I talk about Randy Weingartner you know, from the story from when I, I first heard, and I think I told uh, everyone earlier, the first time I ever heard the name Randy Weingartner, it was somewhere in a uh, number of years ago, I was at Abyssinian Baptist Church and I was being introduced by the assistant pastor, uh, Dees, to the membership of the church. And there was another group in the church being introduced. And this was a group of teachers, a group of black teachers, and they were organizing against a woman named Randy Weingartner, who was the, I, I don't know, at that particular time, maybe the new president of the United Federation of Teachers in New York, saying that, you know, that they needed to organize because of racism. And that was the first time I've ever heard her name. Uh, I subsequently was a union officer in the Washington Teachers Union, and Randy became the president of the American Federation of Teachers. And I had already had uh, um, dealings with the American Federation of Teachers because I had ran for the I had ran for the treasurer of the teachers union, uh, maybe about 2006. And my campaign was built on the fact that I believed that the president at that particular time, Barbara Bullock, had stolen millions of dollars from the teachers. And the American Federation, the teachers hadn't done the due diligence and the oversight they needed to stop this stuff from occurring. Well, nevertheless to say, I lost the election, you know, maybe about 60 or 70 votes, maybe. And but the teachers were furious. They were like, Barbara wouldn't steal the money you know, she, she. how could you say this about her? And, you know, but you look at the budget, you could clearly see that it, it was just insane. Well, a few months later, uh, uh, the president at that particular time tried to charge the teachers $160 instead of $16 and claimed it was an administrative error to put back the money that she needed to pay for the assessment to the American Federation of Teachers. And through that act, it was found out that they had maybe stolen about six or $7 million. And they, her, the the President Barbara, the treasurer of the teachers union, who was working for the mayor of the district of Columbia at that that particular time, Anthony Williams, and uh, uh, the executive assistant, Barbara's executive assistant and others They went to jail I think collectively for seven, nine, 10 years and everybody can Google that particular story. So that was my introduction to AFT. And at that particular time, I thought that um, teachers needed protection from the American Federation of Teachers because it was clear that they were watching out for the interest. And so this was prior to Randy Weingartner uh, becoming president. Now we have Randy Weingartner being introduced into uh teaching. And I mean, being introduced to the leadership of the American Federation of Teachers. And at that particular time, we also had Michelle Ree, who was appointed the Chancellor of DC Public Schools. And Michelle Ree had uh just these insane stories about her performance in Baltimore that didn't make any kind of sense whatsoever. And at that particular time, At that particular time, um, um, I had already been uh, nominated to be on the board before I was 32 years old, to be on the board to run DC public schools by the DC City Council. I had run for school board previously, had endorsements of the Washington Post. I had Harvard in my classroom at 25. So I was one of the most celebrated teachers in DC public schools. And I was also an activist in the union. And we found ourselves uh we found ourselves at odds with the american federation of teachers that was coming in and collaborating with michelle reed whose goal seemed was to fire black educators and um and that's exactly what happened It was a dramatic reduction of black educators in washington dc and i just happened to be one of them now It took seven years for the it took seven years for the Washington Teachers Union and AFT to take my grievance to arbitration seven years. It took another two years for me to win. And so it was nine years and everybody can look at this up on The Washington Post. W. A. M. U. There's various stories, uh, uh, USA, there's many stories about this online where I actually won what would be considered the largest amount for a teacher in probably the United States history. Now, getting that money and getting the job back and getting in retirement has been a whole nother set of experience, a whole different experience. And what eventually happened during the pandemic was I was presented by the washington teachers union with randy ron full understanding as she had met with the mayor several times she had a press conference on my behalf and unbeknownst to me they had negotiated a deal where i would take almost a million dollars less give up my retirement and give up my job after i won the arbitration hmm. so i you know I, I don't know about our listeners but Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody in, in, out there and watching uh this is revolution would have taken that deal. <laughs> <laughs> so this so the city actually fired me again because I refused to take that to take that settlement after I won. Mm-hmm. And Randy Weingarten, to to her credit, she didn't go along with what the local president and the and the lawyers were doing, and they waited almost two months for me to take this. And actually, I would have been able to get full retirement almost like two weeks later. Um, so that was my introduction to Randy Weingartner. Now we move up to Ma- Mike uh, Pompeo mm-hmm. saying, "Well, you know, she's probably the most dangerous person in the world." I think that's hype. That's hyperbole. I mean, that's clear hyperbole. Uh, she might yeah. be the most dangerous person in public education, but to say that she is the most dangerous person in the world, that's just hyperbole. Um, I've specialized in eugenics since I was about nine years old, watching Francis Quest Wellsing on the Tony Brown Journal, um, and I'm trying to understand the debate between her and William Shockley, who was a, a, a Nobel Prize physicist from Stanford University. And I actually live next door (laughs) to the director of that program uh, that was on Tony Brown's Journal. I went to talk to Dr. Welsing when I was about 11 years old about eugenics and and I just got back from London uh, last month uh, where I collaborated with what was the original Eugenics Education Society in Britain. They changed their name uh, several times uh, now they are the uh, Dalphi Genetics Forum, and they refuted uh, their connection to their past and and to eugenics. And it was it was it was, it was a fascinating it was a fascinating uh, day uh, being there. And what we and so all of this revolves around intelligence testing, standardized testing, our housing policies our financial policies in this country, our health care policies in this country. Um, we, you know, we get an opportunity to learn uh, about this, but there was one presentation, and I, and I also went with uh, somebody who I represent, uh, Miss Elaine Riddick, who was sterilized through eugenic policies by the state of North Carolina. I went to- You uh, said
0: sterilized?
4: She was sterilized by the state of North Carolina. I don't know if you've ever had Elaine on your show uh, before or not, but anybody, everybody can Google Elaine Riddick. She uh, is she she's like the Rosa Parks of the eugenics movement. Her participation, her fighting for her rights from North Carolina um, in the years preceding when I was illegally fired, I had a time. I had a lot of time to do activism. So I worked and got national legislation passed, the treatment of certain payments with Senator Tillis, uh, 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 who's a Republican from North Carolina. He had to fight to get compensation for uh, eugenics for the people of North Carolina. And what it did was it set up that anybody that what the treatment of certain payments did was it set up for anyone who was getting uh, compensated by their states for being sterilized. Uh, that any Medicare or Medicaid or Social Security wouldn't count against uh, that benefit that you was getting from Mm -hmm. the uh, that you were getting from the state. It was the only thing. And I, I think President Obama signed it on October the 7th, 2016. I think it was the only thing that the President Obama signed that went through Congress unanimously. No one voted against it in either party. And but there's only been three states. That have um, provided compensation. Uh, that is Virginia, and it was maybe only about 16 people. Uh, North Carolina, I think, uh, compensated about 800 people, and the state of California right now just started their compensation in January. So that runs to I think um, December of 2023. Uh, I saw somebody just post uh, a dangerous idea: eugenics, genetics, and the American dream. Uh, that's an excellent uh, that's an excellent uh, video to watch. So I also had the opportunity to uh, have my friend uh, uh, Dr. Denisha Jones ask President Biden when he was candidate Biden about uh, eugenics and standardized testing, and pre- and candidate Biden at that time. Uh, made the um, remark that he would stop standardized testing. Uh, not don't not that particular remark, but he, he did indicate that he was against standardized testing. And it, on MSNBC, everybody can look that up at a, a candidate's forum in Philadelphia. Uh, but that went down, maybe that down would last maybe about 90 days in this administration. So you know, we are in this fight in this particular country of educating people about what eugenics is and how it affects our everyday lives. And it affects every aspect of our lives. And so I'm looking at uh, transgenerational eugenics. Um, I just saw somebody post about a movie by Stephanie Welch um, uh, that was on eugenics. It's very good about California. Uh, eugenics that Mary J Blige actually did an um, original score for that particular uh movie um and um so that that, that is where we are so uh, when Pompeo says something about wine that is hyperbole the, the question becomes where are we with this dangerous ideology? that filters in American society. And how do we move away from it where well, we can protect African-Americans, where we can protect Latinos? If you look at Puerto Rico, it was thought that they sterilized about one third of the women in Puerto Rico. Fannie Lou Hamer was a famous victim of sterilization, which they used to call the Mississippi appendectomy um, in, in Mississippi. As of I think of 2020 in Georgia, Uh, They were looking at the ice facilities for um, sterilizing women in ice facilities. Uh, A a whistleblower came forward, her name escapes me right now, came forward and talked about the sterilizations that were going on in uh, Georgia. And I think 175 congresspeople asked for an investigation, but I've never heard anything else about the investigation that is supposed to occur. So this is something that happens in public education um, on a, a, a regular basis and it's, it's it's really insane that we are giving testing to our children that puts them outside of being human beings that basically says to them faulty testing that says there's some kind of way that you are less intelligent than you are and not, and that has been going on for the last 100 on um, the last 100 years I mean so it's you know this is where we are uh, with this particular thing, and that is what I have been fighting necessarily with my local union and Randy Weingarten about. Uh, she agreed with Michelle Ree and put this into a, an evaluation uh, called IMPACT, where they just systematically just disregarded teachers in the District of Columbia, and the union wouldn't even bring it up, wouldn't even talk about it. But the former president, of the union, Liz Davis, who actually died tragically last year, last Easter in, a, in an automobile accident. She, you know, she struggled about how to bring this to teachers, you know, knowing, uh, you know, knowing how uh, Weingartner had opposition to discussing that issue, especially how she had joined with Michelle Reed to put it into a teacher's evaluation in the District of Columbia is it's absolutely Insane. And it still exists now to the point that American University did a study of the uh, teacher's evaluation. They just said it was racist. But it was racist when we tried to fight gardener from joining with Michelle Ree to allow it into public education. She tried to take this to other states. Also, it, it didn't fly. And this was done during the Obama administration. That's what a lot of people have to understand. This was done through the Obama administration. So you had teachers being fired in Chicago, you had teachers being fired in Houston, you had teachers being fired in Oakland, all around the country. And most of these teachers were African-Americans. And if you look and try to find stories of this, you might find maybe one or two stories outside of mine, uh, where you'll see that these teachers were fired. Uh, Eventually they tried to fire a group of teachers that believe in Rhode Island And that's when they really, but most of those teachers had, you know, were uh, considered to be white. And that movement pretty much stopped it pretty much at that point. That's when most of the pushback started. So we had done this activism for years and, you know, I'm still on the field doing it now. Jeff, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a question. Is there an
2: intersection
4: between the school choice movements and eugenics in education? There is a connection between the school choice movement and eugenics and it is thought to be um, started in uh, Virginia uh, around, I think, uh, Prince William County Schools where there was a lot of pushback by, uh, by uh, white residents and in, in, in Mississippi um, where they wanted charter schools. Uh, so that they wouldn't have to go to school with uh, white with, go to school with black children. So they wanted parents wanted to be able to take their children out of schools, and they wanted the state to be able to pay for them. So charter schools started as a racist idea in Mississippi. And this uh, was picked up also by Albert Shanker, uh, who was the former president of the American Federation of Teachers. A lot of times people uh, ascribe charter schools to him. And um, white, you know, white Southerners didn't want their children to be integrated during Brown versus Board, So they came up, with, you know, they came up with this basic idea that, um, that they would have these schools and they would be funded uh, by, you know, by the state. And but most of the schools were religious schools, so that wasn't allowed to occur. So yes, there is a connection between the choice movement and eugenics.
2: Yeah, one of the things also that you've talked about here that I think is, you know, I don't want to escape people is that basically the, the narrative that you're painting for us is one in which under the president, the Obama administration, the first black president, we saw a purging of more black and brown and teachers of color than at any other time in public school education. Is that correct?
4: No, no, that's, that's not correct. The actual... uh Largest purging of black school teachers happened after brown versus board. Okay, when the schools were integrated uh, a lot of those teachers who were brilliant uh, black school, I mean, uh, HBCU graduates teaching uh, biology and highest the science weren't able to get jobs in these new integrated systems. So that was the largest purge. This was probably one uh, another one of the uh, largest purges, but it wasn't the largest. After Brown versus Board, that is when uh, you had the largest purge of black teachers who weren't hired by the school system. Okay. that was Run by thank, whites.
2: Thank you for the correction. So this would not have been the largest, but it would have been one of a. It would have been a large purge. Yeah, it,
4: it, was, you know, it, it was. It was clearly one of the largest purges, and. Those rights, those teachers' rights fell in the lap of Randy Weingartner in AFT to try to protect in many instances. And those teachers weren't protected by the American Federation of teachers. And I'm a living a sample of that. I mean, if you would ask Randy Weingartner, she would say no teacher. Matter of fact, she has said that no teacher contacted her more than I did. I mean. On a regular basis, I mean, I was asking for relief from the teachers' unions and from the school system for years. Uh, so you can, like I said, you can Google my story on the Washington Post or uh, just Google my name, Jeff Kennedy, and you can see how for years I was fighting the American Federation of Teachers and um, and also being an advocate against eugenics. Uh, uh, now, internationally.
2: One of the things that became uh, uh, interesting to me about disinformation was the way in which the black political class, which has traditionally stood on the side of black teachers, went almost silent in terms of the way in which the te- black and brown teachers were being treated as a result of these policies. Has there been any attempt to reconcile the lack of support teachers of color received from the elite political classes, the traditional civil rights organizations? And why do you think there was this complete silence on the way they were being sacrificed for these school choice agendas?
4: Uh, you know, that's that's an interesting question. Before I went to London at the Congressional Black Caucus, I had uh, uh, a good conversation with the current director of the NAACP um and for years the teachers who were opposed to some of the reforms the educational reforms that was done uh race to the top and different things that was being done by the Obama administration which preceded george's bush no child left behind um we had um tried to communicate with the NWCP. i'm in communication with the head of the washington chapter of the nwcp matter of fact i owe her, uh, a, a callback. Um, but there was, there was no protection for black. There, there was no protection for black teachers. I mean, Houston, um, uh, was able to protect their black teachers. Um, but that was because they had basically a strong union and they, and they fought against something called value added measures, which is something that's insane. they found it to be unconstitutional. Uh, where you had an algorithm that nobody couldn't find out what this algorithm was. <laughs> and you put it into a teacher's evaluation and by that they would lose their jobs. And that's essentially what you have uh, currently still going on in Washington, D.C. And, you know, w- we need individuals who are actually not going to be interested in more of their own politics, but fighting for educators and children, black children all across the country um you know i've spoken about this uh relentlessly and, and like i said uh anybody who googles my name can find multiple stories for years where i've been saying this for years and it was amazing being in london and watching scientists from across the world scientists who were at the top of their field and all of them all of them sounded like francis quest welsing I mean it was the most amazing day i mean and this is something that francis quest welsing was saying over 40 years ago uh talking about uh eugenics and how it was affecting black families and and as a child you know that's where i was first introduced to the term you know i took a class from uh cornell west maybe about six seven years ago at union theologically union theological to focus in on Du Bois and eugenics. And I remember at one point, you know, he tried to challenge me and we had a rather vigorous uh, debate that I think I may have come out on top. And he took me to dinner for three hours and we just talked and chewed it up about eugenics and where I had gotten this research from. And, you know, a lot of it came from uh, Georgetown University and I had an opportunity to work and to study there, you know, at the, at the law center. And, um, you know, it it's it just absolutely fascinating knowing this, knowing this history and how it directly affects the politics that we face today.
2: Anyone else have any other questions?
4: Everybody jump forward. <laughs>
2: Everyone, don't be, you know, Guys, don't just all jump in. Well, Jeff, you've, I guess you silenced the crowd. I'm surprised, man. You put everyone one. Cooper, well, Do you have any, any questions you want to ask?
3: Um, yeah. I, uh, teachers unions can be some of the most progressive um, elements in society. For instance, uh, in Japan under the LDP, it was the teachers union that kept um, the sort of anti-war peace orientation and, um, Alive and in the public mind, even as through the '90s, the, there was a push from the top to um, to try to remilitarize. And it right now you're seeing uh, a similar battle playing out across the U.S., where um, figures like uh, Ron DeSantis, you know, Mike Pompeo is is actually a, a kind of me-too ditto head late to the party, Uh, but conservatives are going after teachers' unions for things like CRT and especially what they call radical uh, gender theory. Um, Do you – and when you describe eugenics and the testing regime that gets imposed on American students, um, it, it feels like there's two different sources of pressure for social control through education. From the top down, you get this, just indoctrinate the children like we tell you to, right? Um, Patriotism, obedience, respect for the law, keep all that political neo-Marxist stuff out and we'll get rid of teachers who do, Um, versus um, the teachers themselves that, uh, and one question I guess I have is to what extent Does that uh, conservative project push against um, an attempt to uh, re-engineer the uh, curriculum in certain places to to make it more reflective of things like um, racial and gender um, issues? And to what extent is that like a a fantasy, uh, an electoral strategy that conservatives have Exaggerated or spun up?
4: Well, what's interesting, you have to remember, I was a a teachers union official. You know, I was an elected officer of my local union. And um, when we start talking about CRT specifically, so you have, I believe, Rufflow, I believe that's his name, who came up with uh, taking a look at Black studies and anything that that referred to the anglo-saxon man or anything that referred to institutionalized racism that came up with this theory of uh crt which they said was basically marxist that was his that was his core argument that was marxism but what people don't understand about eugenics eugenics didn't go by they didn't care about eugenics were communists they were marxists they were uh neoliberals they were liberals Eugenics didn't. Eugenics was thought to be science. It was almost a religion in this country, regardless of what a person's person, political ideology was. They could still be a eugenicist. And so, when we start talking about CRT and who is going to fight against it, that's sort of a false flag. the The issue goes deeper to who, what is identity, and who we are as a people, and who we are as race. So, you know, again, when I was in London, they were discussing not so much CRT, but they were discussing genocide. And they, they, their studies were coming from understanding genocide and how it filtered into our education systems, how it filtered into our politics. Um, I, I learned so much about uh, why they came up in Britain with uh, eugenics in the first place, the first Boer War where they thought to have lost the war to what they considered to be Africans, who were considered to be inferior, and so the, how they needed to improve their racial stock. They, you know, that, that, that was one of the biggest arguments. So this, like I said, goes back to Galton, who was Darwin's cousin. And if you look at uh, The descent of Man or uh, uh, Darwin's 1859 book, uh, Hereditary, uh, genius, if you look at hereditary genius, um, I mean, excuse me, uh, Galton's book, you you will see all the way up that, uh, and you didn't, just didn't start at Galton, he just basically uh, 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 coined the term, it, you know, you got to go back to about the 1840s, to people like Thomas Huxley, who was considered uh, Galton's, I mean, uh, Darwin's bulldog and he was the one who actually came up with uh, the term um, uh, survival of the fittest uh, so when when you go back and, and look at race science all the way all the way back to uh, jefferson talking about it at the university of virginia you know virginia university of virginia was considered to be the home of southern eugenics uh, so when you go up to 2017 and you see these guys with tiki torches Saying the Jews were not you, they chose the University of Virginia for a particular reason. I remember I had a friend who was working for the governor, and she and she went to a symposium uh, um, done by a University of Virginia a professor. That's online. I can't think of her name right uh, right it escapes me right now. And she came back and she she told me about, wait a minute, that the Tuskegee experiments came out of the University of Virginia and the public health service. So when you start talking about eugenics as how, how it affects political ideologies, eugenics was not in, a, in, in any kind of form. It was left, it was right, it was center. It was considered to be science and all the science served it up until up until uh, hitler used eugenics to basically wipe out the afro germans the jews and the gypsies and at that particular point they just changed the term from eugenics to genetics so you can go look directly at the books and see that you'll have the annals of eugenics all the way i think until 1953 and then 1954, you just see a word change to the annals of uh, the annals of um, eugenics. I mean, it, it has a fascinating history. You're, you're, you're talking about this is where we get fitter family contests. This is where we get baby contests in America. You know, you're talking about people measuring people all the way in the beginning of the 19th century to find out who was going to take these IQ tests, who was going to take this intelligence testing to find out that they were feeble-minded. And because the, the thought was that we had to protect ourselves, our racial stock against feeble-mindedness. And so that is the beginning of the intelligence testing that we have right now. That is the reason why a lot of universities are going against SAT. So if you look at Harvard, Harvard came out, and uh rena- renounced eugenics. I think about two years ago. They also gave 100 million dollars to study. Watch,
0: watch out, Jeff. Kub is a Harvard guy over there talking about his alma mater. He's he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's well, you know,
4: Harvard was the home. Harvard was the home of eugenics. You know, a, a lot of the thought. There's no. They they don't deny this. They actually gave 100 million dollars to study slavery and eugenics. I think maybe earlier this year. So when you look at Yale, Harvard, Princeton, uh, some of uh, Princeton, all the Ivy Leagues, Georgetown, you know, and, and, and their involvement in eugenics, um, it, it is absolutely fascinating. But Harvard is the only university at this particular time who has given $100 million, especially Stanford. I mean, David Starr Jordan had his name removed who was the founder of Stanford, he was a big eugenicist that came out of Indiana University. So, you know, so if you want to put this under CRT, you know, it's, it's sort of fascinating because the conservatives pretty much, they don't agree with eugenics when it comes to abortion. It's so much so that it was in the Dobbs case. There was a footnote in a Dobbs case that was a, a wink to uh, Justice Thomas Talking about that eugenics was basically a plot to um, lessen black birth. And it, it was one of the footnotes in, in the Dobbs case. And so that was that, that's something that's widely discussed. So the, the the law that allows eugenics is uh 1927 Buck versus Bell. Uh and it's still on the books. I, you know, I went to London with Tony Riddick. And Tony Riddick's mother was sterilized. And, I, and just yesterday, I talked to Tony's son. And according to uh, all of Justice Holmes, he said three generations of imbeciles are enough. I was talking yesterday to a young man who would be considered the third generation imbecile. And he's about to enter college and study electrical engineering with a 4.0 average. That's how insane it is. His father is a multimillionaire. Who had um, uh, businesses in in uh, in San Francisco, and, and now he's based out of Ghana most times in North Carolina. So he was worried, and it came out that he was worried that something that happened to him after they had sterilized his mother. I mean, so this is something that the both parties need to take a look at this particular his, this particular history. How it affects American politics, how it affects us on the local level, how it affects us on international level. It's, that is the national security issue. I would like to sit down with Pompeo and find out, is he when he when he says, you know, that Weingarner is the most dangerous person in the world, you know, are, are you referring to eugenics? I mean, like I said, I think that was hyperbole. But the the, the question is you know, we are talking about tearing America apart at its roots behind this dangerous ideology. And as people get to understand the ideology and how it affects their everyday lives, especially in this country and in Canada, they will understand, you know, more about how it affects our politics, you know, how we make decisions about childcare. You know, just uh, just two years ago, Senator, Senator Kane accused the weak, uh, the Chinese government of using the American eugenics uh, using eugenics against the Uyghur movement. You can look that up on YouTube. But the question becomes, where is you know, the senators in looking at, and Senator Tillis is very open about it. Uh, Sen- Senator Tillis is very open about it. And it, it just wasn't Senator Tillis, it was Senator Carper also from uh, Delaware who introduced the treatment of certain payments. But we need to go a lot further in this country of removing this ideology that that has that is so dangerous. It it, it could destroy, basically destroy our nation, in my opinion.
2: Well Jeff, I want to thank you for coming on and talking once again about not only educational issues, but well, eugenics as well in the combination of the two. We'll definitely keep you in the pocket to have you on again to discuss any new innovations regarding the subject matter as you are a resident expert. I hope you will be willing to come on again.
4: Well, uh, thank you for having me on and it's, it's good to be again with the uh, radicals on the left side. <laughs> thank you, Jeff. All right, Jeff. All right. yeah, thank you.
1: Jeff.
4: Peace brother.
0: That was Jeff Kennedy. OG D let's get, let's get that with Jeff Dang it. T I R applause. I think Jeff was on so long ago we were literally clapping people on the show.
2: <laughs> I think that was before the uh before
0: the Yeah, Jeff was on before the snowboard. He might have be been weird. like the third guest with me and you. Yeah, he was early. Or second or third guess. Um MT, did you want to introduce uh Cuba's
1: topic? Can I say something really quickly about uh the Mike Pompeo statement?
0: Oh my god, you wanna just talk out of turn. Well,
1: no, I just it was uh, I was thinking in a very different direction. Yes. You know, but, um I thought uh his statement had to do with uh satanic panic. panic trans panic, CRT panic. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely hyperbole, but mm-hmm. I, I thought he was trying to tap into some of the hysteria over groomers and kids, um, which they're trying to map onto teachers and mm-hmm. unions.
3: It, it's funny. Uh, it feels a little like um, all teachers or groomers is the right-wing uh, ACAB.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. P-A-G.
0: Speaking of green. Yeah.
1: Um
0: Cuba I think we weren't 100% forthcoming with Jeff because you're a bit of a Ewok Eugenicist.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: that um a lot of your policies Your indoor policies um, have to do with your eugenic take on uh, Ewokian thought.
3: And, well, but that's the thing. It has nothing to do with thought. We're just trying to get the poofiest, smoothest Ewok pelts possible. Um, I'll admit it. I'm a groomer, but I mean it literally, right? Like with a brush. (laughs)
1: Ewok groomers did nothing wrong.
0: <laughs> That's the new hashtag. Mm-hmm. Ewok groomers did nothing wrong. Wrong. Yeah, yeah like um, it's it's
3: amazing if you get the right stylist what you can do with uh, properly raised um, you know heritage Ewok. You know, they, you know- they win most of the
0: Ewok shows. Right? Like can you imagine the hood side of Endor and the Ewok hair shows? Like, have you ever seen a black hair show, Pascal?
2: Yes. Come on, man. College.
0: <laughs> <laughs> MT, can you imagine a, an Ewok hood hair show? Oh, Lord. I, I kind of.
3: So. Now I'm imagining that all the Ewoks that you see in Return of the Jedi are like the white Ewoks. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then there's like another village down the way where, um, you know, like C-3PO is wandering in that direction. And the white Ewoks are like,
0: Stormtroopers aren't even fu- Yeah, like, Yeah. Hey, don't even. Mm-mm. We went down there real quick and then they too much.
3: Yeah. There was like an AT-AT parked somewhere <laughs> for a minute. And then it's just stripped down. All the panels are out. <laughs> but that's also where you get the the best hair,
1: right? <laughs> no, such thing as good hair. Just
0: mixed unless Ewoks. It's,
1: unless <laughs> <it's> David Griscombs.
0: MT, can you imagine Mixed
1: Mixy Mixed Mixy. Mixed 17 parents. Come
2: on, now we're gonna now we're gonna start talking about light skinned Ewoks.
1: Light skinned Ewoks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I believe that's the Mon Chi is the light skin Ewok. Brown stick
1: around Ewok.
0: <laughs> oh man. We just I wanna talk about this enough where we get an endorsement from uh, from Disney. Yay. And we can be on one of the Star Wars shows. Like Bill Burr was in The Mandalorian. Oh, yeah. Yeah, You know how awesome that would be if they made uh, Kuba just a walk by character on one of these million Star Wars shows they have? Like in the deck. a clipboard.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you actually see me
0: escorting an Ewok. (laughs) That. That's the dream. That's what we're here for. That is going to be the TIR sellout. Us going on Disney and being in a Disney movie. Oh,
3: the um, yeah, the spinoff is um, a buddy show with me and Gene, but he's voicing an Ewok.
0: <laughs> British Ewok.
2: <laughs> Ewok pessimism. This is.
1: <laughs> Ewok pessimism. <laughs>
2: um,
0: go ahead.
3: He's got like a little mini stormtrooper outfit,
0: um, Ewok sized. The, um, and that's equality. Like the whole thing is the Ewoks trying to fit in.
3: Yeah, the, exactly. The, um, um, I there's a mid season pivot where we go from collecting Ewok pelts to like, what do you mean we need to hire an Ewok?
0: <laughs> First, it's women. Now it's Ewoks.
3: Yeah, like one of them gets promoted ahead of me and then I go full
0: groiper. <laughs> dude, dude. There's someone watching the show right now that's in Hollywood. I know. Make this happen. T-I-R somehow on a Disney Star Wars show.
1: Chat we will build we a chat.
0: shrine to you we if will. you can make it happen. We will. Mm-hmm. And we'll do. we'll all do it for free. I'll speak for myself. I'll do it for free. I can't speak for Pascal and MT. Oh.
1: <laughs> I can imagine an Ewok with the long, luscious hair, like an Afghan hound, voiced by Grissom.
2: And go fronts.
1: Making some ranch water.
0: Yeah, we got it. We someone said priorities. Yes, that is our priority. How do we? Sell out to the might that is Disney. Ewok taking our jobs. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, speaking of selling out, um, Cuba,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you better follow that subtle. No, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Whatever the last thing someone said, I was gonna pivot. Is they could have said anything talk about balls. Speaking of balls some bombs hit oh. <laughs> oh.
3: yes the, um, we had a um, you know I wanted to go with the overall theme of domestic news for this show um, we've got LA we've got public teachers and we've got ball um, missiles falling oh. in villages <laughs>
0: <laughs> wait hold on I had a t- Susanne was supposed to read this and she is totally dropping the ball
1: Oh, you didn't. You were
0: dropping the balls. Oh. That's you right now.
1: Where? Wait, let me find it.
0: I label it too, so you can find it quickly.
1: It's only at the bottom.
0: Uh, yes, that's
1: okay. Cuba, you wanted to follow up on the missiles that hit Poland recently in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Now, Cuba, why? doesn't Poland want more arms and missile defense systems to aid them? From an article in Euronews, in Poland, some critics pointed out that the government was not only refusing higher military protection, but also turning its back on critical EU funding, billions of euros that have been held up by the government's refusal to follow EU guidelines on safeguarding the independence of judges. What does that mean, Puba?
3: So the um, Poland has been a dedicated partner in the NATO effort to um, first counter Russian um, political, diplomatic, and military moves in the Eastern European uh, border region. And after the war in Ukraine, um, broke out has been the main conduit um, for supplies and weapons to Ukrainian military forces uh, as well as a great um, diplomatic supporter uh, within the EU uh, and within NATO of um, more aggressive um, support for uh, uh, for the Ukrainian Struggle against um, the Russian military operation, and when news broke that a couple of uh, Polish um, farmers in the village of uh, Przewodów um, had been killed by um, an explosion during a massive Russian salvo against targets, including in Western Ukraine. Um, the first response immediately was that this was um, either a deliberate or accidental um, Russian strike that uh, strayed into Polish territory. That lasted about a day before, um, and credit belongs to uh, Joe Biden, who uh, from the very beginning uh, rejected the um, accusation that Russia was, somehow behind uh, that particular strike. And uh, it was determined that it was a Ukrainian anti-missile missile, missile, an air defense missile that uh, missed its target straight into Poland and um, struck these two poor farmers. The Polish response has been um, to immediately kind of stop talking about it the Ukrainians. This was self-defense. This was an accident. This was collateral damage, and you can see that incipient move towards making those um, two victims uh, heroes are martyred by uh, Russian perfidy into the category of uh, you know unfortunate collateral damage that we don't want to dwell on uh, because of the. Um, the fact that even with the most generous interpretation, you really don't want foreign missiles accidentally falling on your towns and killing people. Um, There was a plan to uh, move Patriot missile batteries from uh, Germany into Poland uh, to try to, you know, the, the solution to missiles is more missiles Let's, let's shoot them down, or at least let, let's have some Polish missiles that could accidentally land in Ukraine. Um, but um, Poland turned down the German offer, uh, instead arguing that the Patriot missile batteries should be deployed into Ukraine instead. And that uh, makes a, a fair amount of tactical and operational sense. The closer that anti-missile batteries are towards um, to the location of targets, the more effective they are. If you have them on the Polish-Ukrainian border, then um, you have to wait until the last minute before you're uh, able to do anything about a potential incoming strike. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Ukrainians need it more, um, and it would be more useful uh, to have it in uh, the middle of the fight, rather than a kind of TSA for Polish airspace right at the border. Now, um, oh,
1: sorry, so why did Germany police... offer?
3: Oh, uh, Patriot missile uh, missile batteries. They're this a uh, very old um, localized mobile um, air defense system that the United States has been using ever since the nineties. Uh, I remember they were used to substantial effect during um, Desert Storm and Desert Shield to protect uh, U.S. and Saudi targets against uh, Scud missiles fired from Iraq. Uh, The uh, Israeli missile defense system um, is a several generations further developed um, variant of uh, the Patriot. Missile system. Right now, there it's unrecognizable, but that was the some of the base technology they used.
1: Mm-hmm. And why, why did Germany offer?
3: It was a uh, precisely to um, kind of address and try to put to rest the um, issues related to that inadvertent Ukrainian strike on, um, on Polish territory. Right, they give. Uh, Germany is keen to be seen doing more and um, also to take a, a leadership role in Europe. And this was a was a sort of easy gesture that Germany could make and um, a useful repurposing of an old American military system that's been sitting around in Germany on uh, without um, much of a function. So it was kind of an easy get for them. They were not expecting that Poland would turn them down and jujitsu that offer into a um, potential escalation on the Ukrainian front. And that's where I wanted to link to um, this other article in The Spectator, about um, China-US back-channel diplomacy in relation to the Russia-Ukraine war. And this isn't the first time that Poland has come up around a major international arms transfer, Um, apart from all of the ones that get carried out successfully and that don't make the newspapers. uh, There was an effort early on in the war, a proposal coming from Poland, to send um, its fleet of um, MiG-29 Soviet-era interceptors to uh, Ukraine. Their pilots were already trained on them. They had experience. They had munitions, supplies, parts. So those were uh, airframes that uh, the Ukrainian Air Force could use uh, immediately and could potentially make a difference in the early stages of the war. But um, that move uh, petered out and went nowhere. At the time, it wasn't clear why, but uh, this new article in The Spectator uh, credits China with intervening um, through military to military channels with both Russia and the United States to um, get that uh, transfer quashed in order to um, get reassurances from Russia that it wouldn't use um, nuclear weapons in the conflict. Um, To the extent that that was an active threat early on, um, it's impossible to say. But um, now that this has been out, it reveals that China has been playing a more ambiguous role in the uh, Ukraine war than uh, many observers have described, you know, it's often uh, defined as a Russian ally, very pro Russian power. But here um, it's working with the United States to coordinate um, and constrain the type of conflict that might break out between NATO and
0: Russia. So you're basically saying that China is working in China's own interests?
3: China, China's going to China, right? There's no way around it. Um, And the extent to which they um, cooperate with anybody Mm -hmm. is uh, determined by what the benefit is for the PRC. Uh, When they signed um, their latest security agreement with Russia, for instance, they added language specifically to exclude any recently acquired ukrainian territory from the uh territorial defense that they had pledged to if russian territory proper is attacked then there's a nato-like mechanism to get china involved um but that explicitly excludes areas like crimea or the donbass
2: cool i'd like to ask you a question if you don't mind Jason, you mind if I jump in? You want to through? You no, throw? no, no, no. What do you think the potential of the Republicans taking over the House has in terms of obscuring the capacity of the Biden administration to go forward with its agenda with the Russia-Ukraine proxy war? Do you think that they may be able to block funding, to maybe able to block any type of uh, military allocation? Do you see it having any consequence whatsoever?
3: No, the I do not. The um, I remember around a different election, um, talking to an, uh, a State Department Middle East specialist about Iran sanctions. And I asked, well, look, if there's a Biden, if there's a Democratic presidency, are we going to go back to Uh, the nuclear deal with Iran, which was one of the key international achievements of Barack Obama, who's the the last, most sainted democratic president. And the answer was simply, no, there's just a tremendous appetite, bipartisan appetite, for Iran sanctions. Um, If you want to do anything about them, you can't go through Congress because everyone there is happy to vote for them. It's very easy to trade a vote for Iran sanctions for some kind of benefits for your district, whether it's de- Department of Defense jobs or uh, different types of uh, government contracts. And there, uh, while there is a pro-Putin right wing um, in the Republican Party and in the Republican Congress, There's plenty of establishment Democrats, uh, you know, uh, patriotism and baseball Midwesterners and Heartlanders and um, people from all over that play into that aesthetic and into that um, rhetoric. And they'll, even if you um, can't get progressive Democrats, to sign on to more funding for uh, carrying out the war, these Republicans will happily snap up, uh, step up, vote for um, greater military spending and cash the checks in terms of uh, jobs brought to their district or um, defense contractor lobbying money or um, any one of the ways in which they can be rewarded for that stance.
0: Yeah. MT, did you want to add something?
1: Actually, no. This has been really
0: interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Germany, what's your take on Germany, Cuba? So,
3: Angela Merkel mm-hmm. was an extraordinary figure and um, a real European level political figure arguably the first German that could be said to have a continental-wide leadership role. Well, I mean, I guess since Hitler. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, the her um, replacement right now, I believe it's Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor. He's in a difficult political position because there's a complex, um, a complex uh, coalition type uh, situation that uh, keeps him in power. The, and he comes from the moderate wing of the SPD. There isn't a great vision or, or an ambitious change agenda that he's proposing. So basically He needs to, while being the blandest, most um, bureaucratic-looking figure on the European stage with no particular uh, motivation or ideological fervor behind him and without even a a unified movement in the Bundestag, he has to somehow establish himself as a leadership figure um in europe in the wake of um with everybody's memory of Angela merkel still fresh so on the one hand these weapons transfers and grandstanding um around the war in ukraine is uh, a relatively easy way to score those kinds of leadership points Um, he also can't do too much substantively because um, the German winter that's coming with the spike in energy prices, there are severe um, human consumer level and systemic uh, firm level uh, dislocations that uh, are going to come. So he needs to also be considering how do we preserve the German economy um, through this period. And this is a hell of a time for on-the-job training, and unfortunately um, that's where we're at with the German Chancellor.
0: That seems uh, very frightening for the German people.
3: Well, um, let's... It ain't great, but... Um, and, is bland better than poisonous, right? Like, uh, better than toxic.
1: Um, <laughs> and
3: we'll, uh, we'll find out the, um, it, I wish that Poland were playing a more constructive role in Europe. Unfortunately, the law and justice government continues to have the country by the throat. Um, and, this conflict as well as the management of refugee movements into the eu are basically the two areas where poland has a contribution an essential contribution to the eu that lets them tolerate and stomach the level to which um, law and justice is running roughshod over um, the institutional norms and requirements of uh, EU membership, as well as the um, the open society uh, imperative, especially around sexuality, that um, also comes from Brussels. They, they've been shredding both of those European-level um, priorities, but as long as they keep the Eastern door shut, then they'll be tolerated by Brussels. Hmm.
1: Do we know what the winter is going to be like?
3: Not yet. The, um, but winter is coming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I got it. (laughs) Is there anything you want to add before we uh, move on, guys, and wrap the show up? Bueller? Bueller? No Take us home Okay Uh, First off uh, I want to apologize for having to cancel movie night
1: I got struck trying to cross the border on both ends yesterday
0: It was a nightmare We will be doing it soon I'll confirm with movie man Jeremy Salmon See if we can do it this coming Friday And because of my failure Maybe Just maybe We can have a Willy Dynamite and and Life is Hot in Cracktown double feature.
2: You spoil us.
0: Would you guys like to see that? You
2: forgot something.
0: What did I forget? I'm not done
2: yet. Oh, okay. I'm
0: sorry. (laughs) I said wrapping it up. It's a process. I have to get all this stuff in. I didn't mean to step on your mojo. You are step, you, j- between you and MT. What? It's
2: the Haitians, man.
0: It's the Haitians.
2: Ow!
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, for those that don't know, MT also has a soundboard.
1: Yay.
0: Do your applause, MT. Right, Brian. definite <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah golf clap so yeah. uh you're getting double soundboarded you're getting doubled up on here people however Gosh. you're getting
1: Food this man <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, let me keep going with my teleprompter. Wanted to add this is the Saturday free show, so we won't be cutting off the show at, or, at the, around the hour mark going to the champagne room. This show is all champagne all the time.
3: You'd be surprised how many people love the crap.
0: If you're enjoying these Saturday longer form shows, let us know with a like. And if you can, drop a super chat. We have MT on the job, and she will address all of your super chat questions. And as you know, sometimes we engage with other comments as well. So let's wrap it up with the last news topic of the day Slumlords. That's what we're going to talk about. This is housing month. And this is revolution.
1: I want
0: to get you guys' opinion. I don't know what the audience has to say about slumlords. Last week, before we brought in Steve Paxson, I brought up a story about the lack of ability to find housing through the Section 8 program. Well, what if you have market-rate housing, meaning you're not getting any uh, government benefits or discounts on rent because either you don't qualify or you just never bother to apply, and... You live in substandard housing, mold-causing breathing problems, vermin infestations. And what if your apartment complex is a miniature version of the Carter from New Jersey? Whose responsibility is it to uh, make places like this habitable? And how do we even hold these giant landlords accountable? From an article in the LA Times, it's been more than six months since LA city and county officials pledged rapid action after a time story that revealed rampant slum-like conditions at Chesapeake Apartments, a 425-unit World War II-era complex that stretches multiple blocks in South Los Angeles. Since then, code enforcement and public health inspectors have issued more than two thousand citations to the landlord pama properties for violations including plumbing and electrical failures and cockroach and mold infestations now the bulk of the inspection efforts appear to be concluding even through residents uh, even though residents point to continued problems tenants and activists describe mounting resentment and resignation as yet another attempt at making chesapeake apartments safe and habitable remains unsolved it frustrates the tenants to go in circles about this said Sergio Vargas co-director of the Los Angeles chapter of the Alliance for Californians for Community Empowerment which has been organizing residents at the property since the spring we think there should be a complete change of the system clearly this is not working for the tenants at all over the last five years county public health inspectors have found an average of more than three violations per month at chesapeake apartments the most of any residential property in los angeles county during that time a times analyst found earlier this year companies linked to pama properties president mike najjar owned more than one billion in real estate Predominantly in Southern California and many more, many other properties also have had serious health and livability problems, according to a 2020 investigation by LAist. Now, from the LAist article, I did find this wonderful gem by Pama Properties President Mike Najar. Pama Properties management cares about the communities and the people we serve providing affordable housing to those who need it is our mission pama has operated in southern california for more than 40 years in its years of operation pama has served tens of thousands of residents of southern california very often pama assumes management of multi-human apartment complexes in the community that are subject to city and county code enforcement violations due to years of deferred maintenance And does the necessary to improve those properties clear the violations and make it possible for families to continue to occupy those buildings The unsigned statement does not mention Najjar by name. In testimony, Najjar has aggressively defended the way he does business. The tenant is very important to us, he says. Without them, we wouldn't be in business, he said in a 2012 deposition. In the same deposition, Najjar characterized some renters as, quote, crooked people who are looking for handouts. Owning large properties and renting to low-income tenants can be profitable for these giant landlords when you have the ability to quickly evict tenants who fall behind on rent, collect security deposits, and never return them, and don't repair old and failing properties. It will be the people that occupy them that will be the problem, the scourge, not the units themselves. More from the 2020 piece. Regulators across California have excoriated the practices of Najar's primary entity, PAMA Management. The city of Pomona criticized PAMA's long history of disregard and neglect for public health. The California Department of Real Estate deemed PAMA's actions completely unacceptable. The Los Angeles city attorney cited the company's decades of neglect. And the Kern County District Attorney called PAMA a sophisticated slumlord. But for all the tough talk, regulators have rarely held PAMA accountable. Local enforcement, which can be fragmented and toothless, largely cities' problems and imposes modest fines. Governments also do not make basic information about landlords accessible, so renters lacking key details are left to piece together what they can from sites like Yelp. As Gary Blassi, Professor Emeritus at UCLA School of Law told KPCC and LAist, quote, if you compare the enforcement by the health department with restaurants with their inspection of apartments, that's a completely different world, unquote. While Californians can see the health score of a restaurant uh, prominently displayed, there's no letter grade in the window for apartments. But is it as simple as a wise consumer choice? When you have $1 billion in wealth and control that much property, you have the ability to influence politics as well. More from the uh, original LA Times piece. Last fall, Council Member Mark Ridley-Thomas was suspended from representing the district where Chesapeake Apartments is located after a federal indictment on bribery charges. The initial replacement for Ridley Thomas, Herb Wesson, was forced out in July after serving for five months when a judge ruled that city term limits barred him from representing the district even on an interim basis. Vargas said Wesson's replacement, Councilmember Heather Hutt, initially came out strongly behind the Chesapeake Apartments tenants. When she met with residents soon after taking office, Vargas said she told them she was going to take on their landlord. She said, quote, I'm ready to kick Mike Najar's ass, Vargas said. But since then, he said, Hunt's office has not responded to their tenant's requests for additional meetings and has been of little help with navigating the city's bureaucracy. We're seeing the council member hiding from meeting with tenants. The housing department not coming out and meeting with tenants, Vargas said. It feels like neglect on the part of the city of Los Angeles for this vulnerable black and brown community that's being abused by a big corporate landlord, unquote. Just last week, we had a guest and a man whose work I rather enjoy. I actually have a blurb in his latest book. But here is an excerpt from Steve Paxson's How Capitalism Ends. Nigel Ashworth of the right-wing lobby group, IHS, spectacularly illustrates the knots people tie themselves up in when they try to argue that the institution of private property, ooh, sorry, it's moving too fast. It's all Tucson's fault. Tucson, why'd you do that? Oh my God. What? You, you made everything go away.
1: I didn't why'd do you... anything. You did. I just got here.
0: No, you didn't. You've been here the whole time. Oh my God.
1: I, didn't
0: I don't know what to Uh huh. Okay. Nigel Ashworth of the right wing lobby group IHS spectacularly illustrates the knots people tie themselves up in when they try to argue the institution of private property enhances freedom. In his Principles for a Free Society, Uh, Ashford asserts that the, quote, ability to live one's own life and freedom to pursue happiness in one's own way requires property. Without the right to property, he continues, it would be impossible to live, to occupy land, to produce goods and services, to trade with others. To the extent that Ashford's position makes any sense at all, it can only possibly be considered to relate to the ownership of property, not the existence of property. It's the actual ownership of land that allows one to occupy it, not the uh, existence of the concept of ownership. People who don't own any land, don't magically enjoy more freedom because of a legal framework, which enables someone else to own land. In fact, they are less free because the institution of private property means there are fewer places they are free to go and fewer things they are free to use. If the ability to live free, to live in freedom requires property, then Ashford should opposed to any system under which most people don't own any property. Instead, he is a fanatical supporter of a system uh, actually defined by this feature. The institution of private property cannot reasonably be considered to be beneficial to freedom. Private property may, of course, provide property owners with more freedoms than they would otherwise have, but only ever at the price of a net loss of freedom to society. If property owners would like to start justifying the system by declaring that it increases their freedom at the expense of everyone else's, we'll happily drop the charges of inconsistency and hypocrisy. And that again is from Steve Paxson, our guest last week's book, How Capitalism Ends. So the question I have for the TIR crew, what say you about slumlords?
1: Wow.
0: Bad. I'm I'm pro.
1: I, I mean, yeah.
3: I mean they have the word "lord" in their name, so I presume that they're uh, righteous figures that are protecting our traditional way of life against neo-Marxists, and we all owe them um, proper respect and deference. I, for one, um, bow down and
0: kiss the ring. <laughs> I I I. The thing I don't like about some some of these articles is it makes it out to be a personal thing, meaning that this just this one man is the problem.
1: That and one man just, with the problematic last name.
0: Yeah. Nijar. Is it Nijar or Nij- Nijar?
1: Don't, don't, let's,
0: let Don't me. try to say it the right way. <laughs> We're coming for you, Nijar. <laughs>
3: Or coming for you, the country of niger.
0: <laughs> niger. <laughs> I love seeing white politicians say Niger.
2: Well, let me ask you a question. Isn't the slum lord really a function of the failure of the capacity of the state in the public square being able to meet the needs of housing for its public? Because when we think about it, mm-hmm. the the, the loss of an effective public square or a public thoroughfare or the commons, it has greater reper- repercussions than simply administratively having a government not be able to meet the needs of its population. It means that the needs that we have to traditionally depend on from a public square or the commons are left to the device of the private sector who really has no fiduciary duty to those people.
0: Well, if you think about the decline in public housing in the sixties, right? Right before you start to get a lot of the Section Eight programs that come out of the quote unquote Great Society. The the failure was government. And that's what people like Reagan ran on, and especially in places like California, where we do not have public housing like you have in New York. Right? We don't live on top of each other like that. Um, and where Cuba's at in in Vancouver, Canada, you know, it's also extremely different. We don't live like the East Coast lives. You know, people living so
3: yeah, the endless sprawl of the um, San and San Juan Valley. What's the valley? San Fernando Valley. San
0: Fernando Valley. <laughs> yeah, there's there's especially Southern California, right? They don't have it. We just have kind of. If anything, you have apartment complexes that might be a little long, but it's still nothing to to what you guys have. And what you see with these private landlords, you see them buying up these old, decrepit buildings in the first place. So it's almost like either the city takes these buildings over through eminent domain or, or land trusts, and then they then give that to a private company, i.e. an NGO, and says, well, you fix it. We'll throw some homeless people in there and... You know, good luck with that one, with the money that you get from us. Keeping it up to date, to code, and you're also dealing with the population that needs quite a bit of help and probably shouldn't be living alone, and you'll figure it out. That's and, one part of it. Oh, go ahead.
3: Uh, and I think that
0: um, your...
3: Um, really on something important when you say that it's a specific population that has, um, that has needs that go beyond, um, just having a roof over their heads. Mm-hmm. One complaint that's often made about public housing is that it is more expensive than the market alternative. If we just hand it over to the private sector, we're going to get better housing cheaper. And so why are we doing this? And when you look at uh, patterns of public housing and who uses it in places uh, such as Europe, where it existed on a much larger scale and it wasn't limited to the poorest and most desperate people through um, extensive means tests, then one, the per unit maintenance costs are lower because you don't. Just select for people in the most extreme dislocation of their lives, with um, facing all of the other barriers, obstacles, traumas, conditions that come with a history of living rough and being at the margins and being penniless. Um, so you have a much lower per unit price since you aren't just t- looking after the hard cases um, and also because more people are likely to benefit from public housing at some point in the future, you have much more of a uh, social base for ensuring that they get adequately funded and um, preventing the privatization or the cannibalism of uh, public housing for the sake of developers, landlords, or other parts of the budget. But in the U.S., as with... Virtually every post-Clinton program, um, and I realized this this happened even earlier. Um, the very concept of public housing was defined as something for um, you know people who aren't like us, people who need more of a handout, right? That basically. Let's take all of the ugliness that's happening um, out in public right now where people are confronted with the reality of poverty and move those inside and into uh, basically warehouses. And In some ways, you could think of it, um, the specific form of public housing that uh, was adopted in the United States as part of that, um, the same... Apparatus of social control that eugenics, which we talked about earlier, was um, was also uh, wedded to that the you're not looking after the needs of, of citizens, but you're managing essentially uh, um, wildlife population that um, you need to warehouse and you need to control how they reproduce. And maybe in a very Trumpian sense, some of them I assume are good people, so let's give them um, standardized tests so we can figure (laughs) out which ones we wanna keep. But it's very much a kind of population management um, rather than a participatory um, engagement model of um, how to deal with the public. And this feeds into two, the way in which
0: which, uh oh
2: deep state you him
0: he got him he got himself he was getting he got too himself. real he was getting too real with himself you oh. got cut off Kuba yeah the
3: somebody didn't like what I was saying but um <laughs> the I assume that was you I'm too something. Uh, but um
1: getting a little too real <laughs> but
3: one of the criticisms made about public housing is that the tenants don't have any investment in it so they let it deteriorate. But there are also so many rules about what can and cannot be done and such strict control and management over life in um, public housing projects that often you're not really sure what will get you kicked out, right, unauthorized repairs. that that might be the reason to purge you even if the um, unit turn everything you've done has been um, for the benefit of um, as improved conditions in the unit and actually made it more desirable
0: well let me let me stop you right here real quick kuba sorry to to interrupt you but i do want to bring this up i was rambling (laughs) (laughs) i do want to bring this up before we go Uh, one thing that Neither article touched on too much is the fact a billion dollars over a billion dollars in property and controlling that much property means that you probably have a good amount of political influence.
2: Mm.
0: Um, and another thing we don't talk about too much when people, you know, have kind of a love affair with the idea of the proletariat is you're also talking about a, a lot of people that don't do things like pay property taxes, um, contribute, contribute, Uh, the way richer people can. And it's hard to have power when you don't understand what power is. And what I found interesting was, even when, um, in in the original article, it starts off saying that literally they came... The, the property management company came in because they were supposed to r- fix these problems in the unit and they just rescrewed it. like a cabinet door fell on this guy's mom's head and she had to go in an ambulance and they basically just screwed the cabinet back into rotted wood you know it's a matter of time before it happens again um and all, all these problems that were wrong with the unit got signed off. And I asked that question, how do we hold these large landlords, uh, accountable when you have the ability to not just donate to a politician but as we are, we are seeing with the tech industry, especially, it, it's becoming so glaringly glaringly apparent that that they, like a lot of gajillionaires, g- donate to multiple people, multiple parties.
3: The I, I think that the easiest way is to move the enforcement of. A regulatory compliance away from the uh, authority of the people who can take um, developer money. Mm-hmm. So roll it up into a state or federal level, or f- quite frankly, um, if I were tenants, I would want to get the UN in there, right? Get yourself a unbiased um, institution that can tell the, um, that not only can tell landlords what to do, but is willing to, uh, without impartial, professionalized inspectors that won't just sign off on things and that hold um, public housing units the same standards that private sector landlords actually and, and you know
0: ought to. There's private inspectors. Did you, Pascal, know about that? There's
2: private home inspectors.
0: There's a company, so they'll just, yeah, there's inspectors. Yeah, of course there are. I guarantee they
2: have have government contracts. Yeah.
0: Yeah. After all,
3: who else is buying, right? (laughs) And the, but this is just um, the same part of the outsourcing contracting strategy that has hollowed out um, every level and every branch of, um, government, uh, especially in the U.S., but it's, uh, it's a broader Western phenomenon. The, and to go back to what we were talking about earlier about unions, um, teachers unions, for instance, have traditionally been very progressive and a real problem for reactionary governments. In Norway, during the Nazi occupation, uh, during World War II, Uh, teachers' unions' protests got people out of concentration camps. Mm. Um, Granted, only Norwegian people, but still, that's a better track record than um, you get pretty much anywhere else. Um, It's a type of profession that attracts idealists, um, people who want to change the world. It's a mass profession, right? You need one teacher for every certain number of students, so there's always going to be a substantial number of them. And uh, they're big nerds, so, you know, they read and they keep up with stuff. Um, They have opinions. And the, um, you, it's not coincidental that, you have the greatest anti-union, anti-teachers' union movements going on in fl- uh, states like Florida, which have a decided reactionary tone to um, to their politics. And you risk the same thing with public sector employees. In fact, it can be even more sensitive because you end up with um, that dynamic with the staff that's essential for carrying out whatever uh, policy program you have. So uh, outsourcing all of those federal uh, civil service jobs means that you don't have to worry about labor militancy or organization within your key um, staffing um, for the security state or the administrative state. And instead, you can actually flip uh, a number of people who defined by what they do, they should be uh, white collar workers for um, the federal government. You flip them into um, entrepreneurs, right? Small businessmen, petty capitalists, and get them on side with your um, neoliberal or reactionary political program by uh, cultivating that image that identity on their part right i'm not a i'm not a government parasite i have a company i'm a businessman it's like who's your client the government
0: yeah it, yeah pascal do you want to add something before we go
2: i think that you guys are absolutely correct in terms of i mean this is really depressing to me because it just <laughs> the question becomes like how do we create a new vision of a society where we're really stuck in this capitalist realism when the private sector has all the means of control over negotiating with the the, the, the the access to the means of production, not just control over the means of production, but the, the, the spaces of negotiation with the means of production. And it sometimes you it's a question that you have to ask this is like, you know, what needs to be done to create the public consciousness we have in a society to transform these state old ways of wealth extraction so that we can actually make it a more humane place. And I think it's going to require something something very radical that, you know, I'm not saying hey, we're going to have to go, go to the Ma Ma or the machete, but I think no, um, a, a, a movement of mass, mass capacity.
3: And I think that um, it might be one place to start might be actually law school and organizing um, young lawyers because there's going to be a surplus of them, law schools have been producing too many lawyers uh, for decades now, um, and it's particularly bad in these late cohort, uh, latest cohorts. And what it'll take to peacefully um, recalibrate the system is essentially a lawyer's jihad.
0: Um, through imagine how awesome that would be if we actually had like lawyers that were really Should I have lawyers? On- I mean, what's <laughs> it was sad about this stuff when you read it it's always one or two people that are trying you know good intentioned people that are trying much like with the wood street project you know that's a lot of people on the ground and i believe there was one attorney there might have been two uh, involved with trying to to keep the encampment which of course they did lose sadly um so you, you, you know, I, I, I feel like there's so much of an us against them mentality and a lot of the rhetoric that I see that's almost childlike. Um these is almost it almost feels like fuck you mom energy. Like um like uh we hate these people because they're rich and they're bad and we don't want to fuck with them. And, you know, we don't we don't like cops, and we don't like lawyers, and we don't like these people. I'm not saying you have to like cops and lawyers, but there's there's something to be said about what Kuba's saying. He always talks about, you know, what if you infiltrated a police department? You know, one, as we found out, one good DA don't mean nothing when you have to fight the entire police force and the entire city hall. And the...
3: Even if you try and fail, having contested institutions rather than ones which are just reactionary by default Mm -hmm. is an improvement. Um, And there's one of the dynamics that I think lies behind American political polarization, uh, which... I'm neutral to the phenomenon because um, I'm not one of these guys that like oh, both sides extremism is is hollowing out America, but um, politics are getting more pol- polarized, and there are um, there are extremist movements uh, in the U.S. that are extremely violent and dangerous, um, that have a lot more oxygen now than they did because of that polarization. Um, largely, uh, racists you know um replacement theory type qAnon type um theories um uh, now if you um if police departments are just handed over to um to the right wing um because no leftist wants to even apply then that gets replicated in other fields as well. In a lot of ways, the culture industry is the great bugbear of the right because conservatives don't really exist in it. Yeah. Um, and by having these areas, these functional areas that you can't get away from, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't matter how liberal you are, doesn't matter how um, far left you are. You, the cops are still part of your life, whether you like it or not. You can, you don't have like a liberal police department you can opt into. Um, and similarly, the peak culture industry is inescapable. Um, I mean, conservatives still love to whine and bitch about it. And I don't see them making, um, <laughs> you know, a reactionary Mandalorian. Um, yeah. They- <laughs> Like, it's, it's all about um, how hard it is to be a stormtrooper, you know. Um, <laughs> they, they don't get it. It's like a war zone. I go out every day and I don't know if I'll make it back. <laughs> you call them Ewoks, I call them animals. Uh, um, uh-huh. The, like, the, those political monocultures that develop within entire sectors of American life, then... Um, increase the sense of confrontation. Um, and honestly, if the shooting starts, I'd rather have the police than uh, Disney.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that, you know, let 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 us know what you guys think about the show today. Let us know what you guys think about eugenics.
1: Can I bring something up?
0: Of course, you can.
1: Thank you. Um, not to be that guy, but to you be are. that guy. Oh my god, rent strikes are also potentially. You said,
0: you said friend strikes,
1: friend rent strikes, strikes. rent oh.
0: strikes, not friend strikes,
1: not friend strikes. You keep your friends, you hold them, gear. worry about your ops instead. <laughs> um, so yeah, rent strikes. Um, during vids uh were floated out as an answer. There were different organizations that were trying to help people um, organize rent strikes. Uh there was that famous story of the landlord that, I guess threatened all of his re- all, all of the residents. Mm-hmm. and he did so through email while exposing all of their emails to each other, which allowed them to organize better. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely risky. You certainly don't want to find out you're rent striking alone, uh, but you know you are right next to. You. And, don't do it alone.
3: <laughs> well, and also, uh, I. It's called eviction. I think. I think that um. We talk about the uh, the importance of organizing and how nobody does it, and we bemoan the fact that uh, workers. Aren't in factories, aren't in mines anymore. Um, the nature of work is more atomized, slower scale, it's harder to organize people. But why do you have to limit yourself to your workspace? Um, mm-hmm. I personally, um, I'm delighted that I don't need to find out who my neighbors are.
1: Um, <laughs>
3: but um, if you're having troubles with your landlord, Or if you see problems in your community and if you want to uh, connect with people that might have the same or shared interests, then um, organize a building, organize your floor. Um, The loneliness is such a problem in the United States that people might just be grateful to have an outlet. Um, And then if there are issues with uh, rent or the landlord's behavior it doesn't have to necessarily turn into a rent strike but you can coordinate collectively uh, mm-hmm. rather than facing that behemoth on your own
1: very true gotcha. and there's organizations that are willing to help you mm-hmm. there's also lawyers uh, a friend of mine got a lot of help from her local dsa I told them I told her to just go to them and uh, and ask them that's kind of what they're there for Right.
0: That's what they're supposed to do. Yeah.
1: They ended up with a class action lawsuit. Oh, unemployment. It was uh, productive. Good exercise in a collective action.
0: Well, again, as I was saying before, MT told me to shut up. Let us know what you think about the show. Let us know what you think about eugenics. Let us know your take on what Cuba had to say about where Poland stands. In the Russia Ukraine war.
1: And where Germany. And Germany.
0: Yeah. Let us know what you think about MT's new soundboard.
1: Ow. Oh!
0: <laughs> that sounded so real.
1: It really does. And person sounds hurt too. <laughs>
0: it sounded so real. So we will be back Tuesday, allegedly. Did you book the Tuesday guest, MT? No. Who's the
1: Tuesday guest? I Is this the person find... whose book we're supposed to be reading? That I haven't
3: started. Wait, there's there's a book report. Why haven't I been consulted?
0: You don't really come on Tuesday, that's why. Yeah, I know. Smart. I... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You figured this shit out. Also, Monday, we'll be announcing, we're not announcing, but we'll be having the link up to uh, to buy tickets for the live show. Okay. Uh, I believe the link is up right now in the description for the show. I'm pretty sure MT put the link in the chat. Definitely the link will be in the comments. Yeah. We're getting closer and closer to the completion of the kayfabe documentary. I'm so excited. Um, I have to wait. <laughs>
3: 15 likes from 100.
0: What is wrong with people? What is wrong with people? Is this
1: a like strike? (laughs) (laughs) Don't organize against the podcast.
0: Yeah. Are we going to have to get some like strike breakers? Someone asked if I ever got around to watching Bullworth. I did watch Bullworth as I was a guest on Movie Night Extravaganza. You can see that. It's up on YouTube. My episode with Forrest Conan and the fellas giving my opinion on that horrible movie. Um, also, if it's all good with Jeremy, we'll be doing movie night this Friday. Let's cross our fingers.
2: Also, the Mau Mau hour is on Wednesday. This is
0: oh, the my week. God.
2: Okay. It's that time again? It's that time again.
0: So, Mau Mau this Wednesday. Then we'll have movie night this Friday, if it's all good. Double feature movie night means that we'd have to start a little earlier. If again, it's if only if it's all good with Jeremy. I'm excited if we can watch both Willy Dynamite and Life is Hot in Cracktown. You'd be surprised how many people love the crack. That, can I just
1: uh, say, mm-hmm. from Mau Mau Hour, mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was that time again, mm-hmm. but uh, I just want to let the uh, sapiosexuals in the audience know it's coming. Get ready.
0: Is that from The Mask?
1: No, it's from The Simpsons. That's oh, a- also-
0: Born yeah. Center wants to know a date horror story. I have no date horror stories, Born Center. I will tell what? you this.
1: He has a life horror story.
0: I have a life horror story i will tell you this before we go but did i say this already because i know we were off air
1: no, i had the most california
0: experience ever yesterday and i'm going to leave it at that
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow okay I'm,
0: yep not even going to get into it
2: fool this man <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Can't get into it. Most California experience ever. It was it was something you can only experience in California.
1: Tons vegetables on pizza.
0: No. It was the multi ethnic chicken and waffles that I had.
1: I knew that's where were
3: going. <laughs> <laughs> or a hundred likes. Of we can let them go. Okay, multi ethnic chicken and waffles wins again. Um, Thank you, Ethiopian, um, who apprenticed under a tie.
1: <laughs> Quite an education they got. <laughs> Kuba, we have a question from earlier. Real That's quick. what was to, I was trying
2: to go.
1: Who shot JFK? <sighs> I said it was the butler, but we be Harvey Ewok. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oswald was a Patsy,
1: <laughs>
3: but just for his Ewok counterpart.
1: <laughs>
3: a Knoll is not a large formation, but it's plenty of cover for an Ewok.
0: That's true. Mm -hmm. I was on Fatal Dates. Someone mentioned Fatal Dates with uh, Susie Kleeman and Doug is suppressing my episode.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: No, he's not. He just has a schedule where it comes out. (laughs) 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 Just starting fake beef. So don't forget, Monday tickets go on sale. Bam! Kuba, <laughs> your name is on the flyer. Do you see that? I do. Um, that? It looks too long. That's what she never says. <laughs> <laughs> if she ever said that, a tear would roll down my cheek and I'd say, You had me at hello. <laughs> And on that um,
1: note, yeah.